If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the names of big businesses like Amazon and Hermes, to the popularity of films like Disney's Hercules and the 2004 historical epic Troy, stories and figures from Greek mythology continue to fascinate us. For the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, History Extra digital section editor Rachel Dinning put your questions on Greek myths to the classicist Natalie Haynes. Thanks for joining us on the History Extra podcast today, Natalie. It's really great to have you. So we're going to be talking about ancient Greek myths today. We've got some great questions submitted by our listeners, and we're also going to put some popular search engine queries to you as well. Um, So I thought we could start by you giving us a bit of an overview of Greek myths in general. Would you mind explaining what do we mean when we say Greek myths? Which stories and works are we generally referring to when we say this? Oh, thanks for having me on. Um, That's a really big question. I'm not going to lie to you. So the problem is that we have lost almost all literature from the ancient world. So between 97 and 99% of literature written in uh, ancient Greek has been lost to us. And also literature written in Latin, which is often retelling Greek myths. And yet we've still got loads of both literary sources, but also artistic sources. So vase paintings that you might see if you go to a museum, you might have seen in, for example, the British Museum, a vase with Odysseus on being, um, he's tied to the uh, mast of his ship and the sirens are singing to him. It's a really beautiful vase. Um, So we might get stories from there, but that just confirms a story that we also know from Homer from uh, the Odyssey. So I guess the texts that we probably would think of of being kind of the earliest texts, the Ur texts, if you like, but there's not quite any such thing really with Greek myth because it's always being recreated, are the two big Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but also poems written by Hesiod, um, who wrote a, a kind of God's origin story called the Theogony, but then also Greek tragedy, which takes a lot of the stories that we get in these epic poems and retells segments of them or tells them in a different way. Um, so that's Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. And then, you know, a few centuries later, the Roman poet Ovid comes along and he writes an extraordinary poem called The Metamorphoses, 
which is all Greek myth reworked for a, a Roman audience um, with the unifying theme, mostly unifying theme, of change. So that's a, a huge and recurring theme in Greek myth that people change into plants or animals or demigods become gods or constellations. So the act of change is, is as Ovid correctly observed, um, is a really central theme to Greek myth. So all these different sources, plus sculpture, plus other visual arts, plus, you know, sometimes we've lost the sculpture, but like the geographer Pausanias saw it and wrote about it and so on and so on. So some of it feels so far removed from us. It's like fifth, tenth hand by the time we get it. It's almost, you know, we have mythographers from later, like Pseudo Apollodorus, who'll give us different versions of a myth. So there's sources of incredible complexity and also incredible simplicity. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have an example of a myth or a story that's gone on, you know, gone on a journey over time and has completely changed its meaning or evolved somehow across history? Um, what's a good, interesting example of how a Greek myth has changed? Yeah, I mean, almost all of them do. So perhaps the most obvious is Helen, um, who we think of, of course, as Helen of Troy, um, but she begins her life as Helen of Sparta, southern Greece, uh, the Peloponnese. Um, and then the version of the story we all know is that she elopes with a handsome man, Paris, a Trojan prince. And because of that, that starts the Trojan War. She is the face that launched a thousand ships, if you want to go um, fully uh, Marlowe on, on the thing. But there's a version of her story which dates back at least as far as Homer. So at least as far as our earliest literary source for Helen going to Troy. And this alternative version has Helen not going to Troy at all. She goes to Egypt. She lives out the entirety of the Trojan War in Egypt. And the gods create an Erdalon, an image of her, um, which is made of air, but looks exactly like her. And that is what goes to Troy. The war is fought in the exact same way. Her name is cursed by the Greeks on one side and the Trojans on the other in the exact same way. But Helen herself isn't there. And then on their way home, when the Greeks finally claim her at the end of the war, she, this Erdalon disappears into the air that it's made of. It's the perfect metaphor for the futility of war. And the Greeks are on their way home in Euripides' play Helen, cursing Helen's name, even though it wasn't her. And they find her, Menelaus, her husband, finds her in Egypt. She's on the banks of the Nile at the start of that play. But that version of the story, which was incredibly well attested in antiquity, just, you know, people just lost interest in it. We like the idea of the beautiful woman and the destroyed city being her responsibility. Um, there's certainly a bit of misogyny going on in the versions of these stories that we prefer. And sometimes you can see a story changes incredibly late, like um, Pandora. In the ancient versions of her, we have two ancient versions of her um, in Hesiod, a shorter one in Theogony, a longer version in his poem, The Works and Days. And in the second of those versions, we're told she has a jar, which is full of the world's evils. In the first version, no mention of a jar at all. In no ancient source whatsoever is she described as having a box, ever, ever. In every single visual representation of, Pan representation of Pandora from the ancient world, she's, all, she's never shown with any kind of receptacle. She's always shown in the act of being created. She's sculpted from the earth um, by the god Hephaestus. And then Erasmus comes along, um, Dutch polymath, 17th century, and he makes a mistake. He sees a Greek word, pithos, in Hesiod, jar, and he translates it to the Latin word pixis, box. And within 20 or 30 years of him doing it, 
every image of Pandora shows her with a box. It's like, oh my God. And so that phrase is incredibly common. And yet it, it has absolutely no basis in, in ancient Greek writing. That's amazing that that's such a recent addition comparatively. Really recent. Oh yeah, no, 17th century is practically, it's not even, it's, it's not even history as far as I'm concerned. It's basically current affairs. <laughs> as soon as the Romans leave Britain, it's modern history. <laughs> that's what I'm sticking with. I mean, it's basically fake news. Pandora's box is fake news. Mm. It absolutely is fake news. Achilles really does have an Achilles heel, but Pandora never has a box. So my next question is probably going to be quite difficult to answer based on what you have said about how these stories have evolved and changed across time. But a lot of people on our social media channels were really interested in knowing about why why these stories were written. So I suppose in their earliest forms... Was there a purpose to these stories? Did they serve as fables or was it closely linked with religion? Were they perhaps used as a form of control of the masses? That, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's literally an impossible question to answer because, you know, ancient Greece is 2,000 years long. It's as far from the earliest bit of, of ancient Greece to the latest bit of ancient Greece as we are from Julius Caesar in terms of time. Um, so it's an enormous period of time and it's an enormous expansive place. And these stories arise all over the Greek-speaking world. And sometimes, perhaps often, they're also pilfering from other sources, you know, so you'll get bits of Gilgamesh suddenly appearing from Mesopotamian myth in Greek myth, um, or, you know, reworking stories which pre-existed. So it, we have no, of course, there's also the problem that these stories were told orally, originally. So they're not written down until much later when Homer composes um, the poet that we, poets that we like to describe as Homer. It's it's almost certainly not one poet. But those are the 8th, maybe 7th centuries BCE that, that those poems are being constructed. But those stories are much older. You know, they are centuries older by the time Homer, our earliest source, is is composing them. And alphabetic writing doesn't come in for quite a while after that. And so these stories were composed and memorised and performed. And that's why you get these lovely repetitive phrases in Homer, the Homeric epithet, um, Rhododactylos Eos, uh, Rosy-Fingered Dawn is my favourite probably. And they were aid memoir, quite aside from being beautiful, they were also, this was part of the, you know, performance. So I, I feel really confident telling you that they were performed it seems impossible that there wouldn't be some kind of religious element just because religion and performance are so intimately connected in Greek culture. Um, so drama, for example, as we know, it, is always performed in honour of the god Dionysus. Um, and so I would feel reasonably confident suggesting that. But, you know, the, the versions of poems being performed that we see inside the poem of the Odyssey which is full of bards who are almost always making someone cry, Penelope in book one, or, you know, but they're pretty much always like doing their absolute best and getting given wine and snacks. And you think, how much of this is representing reality? And how much of this is the poet who's performing the Odyssey going, look how well poets normally get treated. Look how well bards normally get treated. Maybe I could have a drink here. I, You know, it's impossible to say. So I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea of it having a religious element. The idea of control... Uh, oh, you're a cynical bunch. Yeah, I suppose if you're hoping to keep a 
what's how does that work an audience of of people behaving nicely because they hear the stories of what happens in the I mean there's literally no part of the Iliad where I would think yes this is this is a good example for you to follow um so yeah I'm not I I yeah I'm not sure so with a lot of the stories, obviously they have quite fantastical elements. We've got a whole cast of gods and goddesses. We've got mythical creatures and, you know, just these incredible, fascinating stories. They've been turned into countless films and television series today. And quite a few of our readers and listeners on social media were very curious to know if any of the legends or the figures within them are based on real people or real events. Yeah, I mean, certainly real events must have done. Almost every culture worldwide, pretty much as far as I know, has a a lost city under the sea, um, the Atlantis myth. And we have to assume, I think, that that's to do with, with, you know, freak incidents with the sea, a tsunami, I guess, um, or, you know, sudden and dramatic land erosion, which obviously would have been very frightening, or earthquakes, um, which, you know, you can sort of see that the connection between earthquakes and the sea is really intimate in Greek myth because Poseidon is the god of both. You know, he smacks his trident and and it creates an earthquake, but he's also god of the sea. So I think that that idea of a, of a lost city, lost beneath the waves, is, you know, it's it's presented in a much more romantic way, obviously, um, in myth cycles than the reality would be. But I think we can probably see how that happens. And similarly, um, the monster, well, a giant, storm giant, Typhon, um, is he rises up against Zeus uh, and, as tends to be the way, gets crushed um, and then imprisoned in a sort of fire pit in Tartarus. But some versions of the story here have him imprisoned under Mount Etna. Um, And so that is why Etna rages. That's why the volcano erupts, because Typhon, or sometimes it's a giant called Enceladus, is stuck under it being really angry. And you can easily see how, if you lived on Sicily and a volcano suddenly exploded without warning, um, because you didn't have all the resources that we have to make ourselves not frightened of them, namely, you know, ways of measuring volcanic activity or seismographs to understand how earthquakes work or whatever, you would think something was, you you would write a story around it. And a big giant stuck under a mountain works pretty well, I would say. So I think that's probably, and, you know, there are other examples. Amazons probably um, are... They're usually placed in a uh, location called Themyscira, but they almost certainly come from um, the Russian steppe where there were, and indeed are now, nomadic women warriors. So were they mythical? Yes, absolutely. Penthesilea is the daughter of Ares, the war god. Um, But we have to assume that the Greeks knew at least a little bit about these warrior women um, because you know, they're obsessed by them. They paint them on pots all the time. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's probably, they, they certainly have a sort of compulsion to to tell these stories. So yes, I think there would definitely have been, if not a specific individual influencing a Greek myth, which is, you know, so far in the mists of time, we can't possibly um, unravel it. But there are definitely examples of types of people. And the ancients knew how, how vague that, that these things kind of become over time as well. There's um, a lovely moment in I can't remember, maybe it's Plutarch, but it could be Pausanias, um, where he talks about the Amazons, I think, and says, 
You know, all these stories seem quite contradictory, but they would do because they're really ancient history. And the idea of history and myth being separate, that's our construct. That's not the, for, for the Greeks and indeed the Romans. Myth was just history that happened long ago and had therefore got dragons in it. And so, you know, it's like, well, yeah, of course there are all these contradictory stories. This is a really old story. And you go, yeah, okay, yeah, why not? So, yes, is the answer. So many of us, certainly me, um, first encountered Greek myths via the 1997 Disney film Hercules, which is loosely based on the legendary hero Heracles, known in the film by his Roman name, Hercules, who is the son of Zeus in Greek mythology. So firstly, I'm curious, what do you make of the film? Uh, You will get no criticism from me. I think it is enchanting. It's probably my favourite big screen Disney um, uh, Greek myth adaptation. And definitely, if not my actual favourite Disney film, certainly in my top five. It's a joy. So a lot of our listeners were curious about, I want to say the historical accuracy, but that might not be the correct phrase here. They were curious what elements of the Disney film are true to the real Greek mythology um, and what elements are made up for the film. Well, again, Hercules, Heracles, to give him his Greek name, Hercules is the Roman version of his name. So I suppose if you were feeling, you know, finicky, you'd say, well, from the very get-go, it's wrong. Um, But obviously what... What would be the point in that? Loads of it is based in... I mean, this is a really difficult one to answer because obviously there are moments when Danny DeVito as Philoctetes crosses the road at a um, pedestrian crossing with traffic lights. And clearly that isn't particularly Greek. But loads of the story actually has has quite a firm basis in, in Greek myth and ancient versions of myth. And the idea of the giants or titans um they're they're two separate sets of people in greek myth but i think they sort of get merged a bit in the film and they rise up and uh attack olympus that that big sort of push for hercules to have his heroic conversion that really is in greek myth in fact that typhon is one of those um badly behaved giants which is how he ends up under etna or sometimes fire pit of tartarus um and so and the idea that a human, a mortal, has to be there in order for the gods of Olympus to win. That's, that too, I think, is attested in ancient sources. Um, obviously, the labours of Hercules, masses and masses and masses of evidence for that, especially in the visual arts. Hercules is the most popular mythological character to be depicted on ancient vase paintings, and the labours are the most popular bit of his story to be depicted. And of the labours, I think I'm right to say the most popular is the Nemean lion. Just quickly, for listeners who don't know, what were the labours of Hercules? Ay, 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 you cannot ask me to know them all. <laughs> so he, so he's punished for... I mean, the bit that the film entirely omits, in my view correctly, is that before he meets his second wife, I think he eventually... He marries Deonira, who, spoiler, kills him by mistake. Um, and then I think he marries Hebe, does he, in the sort of afterlife as a as a sort of deity. Um, so I think he's married four times, but his first wife, he kills. He, he kills her and his children um, in a... Uh, th- that would be wife two. Wife what? This has happened before he ever gets to meet Meg, is that he uh, he's maddened by a gadfly, I think, or he's maddened by Hera anyway. Um, he goes crazy and uh, he kills his wife and he kills his children. And there is uh, a play about this, the Hercules raving, as it's normally... Um, titled by Euripides. And uh, it obviously doesn't form a very good Disney cartoon (laughs) to have some 
on killing children. So oddly enough, they came in after that. So he's enslaved because of that and has to do these labors, these tasks, impossible tasks are almost always, again, they're a feature of myth cycles all over the world. Um, and uh, with uh, it's this maybe isn't interesting. It's interesting to me. Um, women almost always have like sorting tasks. So psyche in Greek myth has to sort of sort out seeds and, you know, essentially make neat piles of things. And she gets, you know, bugs and insects. It was all very Disney. Uh, yeah, insects help her arrange them all into the right piles so she can, you know, succeed in the task. Or sometimes you have to weave something impossible and men have to go and perform an impossible quest. And Hercules gets given a whole bunch of these. So he has to, you know, go and claim the war belt of the Amazon Hippolyta, who I might add, gives it to him without any hesitation. So quite an easy labor uh, as they go. Um, he has to clean out the Algian stables. He has to, you know, fight various, uh, a, a boar and a lion and, you know, so various monsters. Um, and they do that really well in in Disney Hercules and give him, they, that's, that's what his hero's journey is. This is how he goes from being this sort of geeky, teen um to being this sort of you know impressive man whoever and he hasn't grown up emotionally of course he'll only do that when he falls in love with meg um but uh, you know that's how he grows into his sort of hero qualities i think they do that brilliantly the the idea of hades being evil i think comes from a sort of slightly more christian mindset where you know the god of the underworld must therefore sort of be the devil and it's very very hard to see versions of the underworld in contemporary culture which don't have that kind of overlay in them yeah so i did actually have a question about the underworld specifically um so was this considered the equivalent of the christian hell was it a place that people went to be punished I mean, some of it, um, but there are the Elysian Fields, which is where you go if you're a hero. But here's the thing. In the Odyssey, in book, I'm going to say 11, with total confidence, so it sounds like I always meant it. I think it's 11. Um, there's a sequence called the Nequia, where Odysseus goes down to the underworld. He's still alive. Um, he goes down to the underworld to try and like, interview a prophet who will tell him what he needs to do to get home. The short answer is maybe don't poke out the only eye of a cyclops, brackets, son of the god of the sea, and then tell him you did it, close brackets. Um, but, uh, he, so he goes down to the underworld, and while he's there, he sees a whole bunch of characters um, who are now dead, including Achilles. And Achilles tells him, and he's sort of, he's like, oh, you know, you're so heroic, everyone was so impressed with you. And Achilles says he would rather be a labourer among the living than king among the dead. So although the underworld is about as good as it can be for Achilles, and although he had made the conscious choice when he, he goes to the Trojan War, he's given the choice between a short and glorious life, i.e., you know, fame everlasting, as, you know, assured by the fact that people like me keep talking about him, but early death, or he can have a kind of completely unremarkable life, but a long one. And it seems that once he's in the underworld, he regrets the choice that he made. So I think it's not, I think that's still a long way short of hell, the idea of being punished. That belongs to a particular part of the underworld where people who did villainous things when alive are punished forever. And that's where Tantalus, who gets tantalized um, with the offer of grapes and things, but he's never allowed to eat or drink. Um, that's where those sorts of things happen. And Ixion is tormented on a wheel that never stops moving and Sisyphus and his rock. So there is a bit of the underworld set aside for sort of eternal torment. Um, but it's quite a limited bit, but none of it sounds like fun, let's say. Before we move on, I just wanted to jump back to Hercules or Heracles. 
um, for a moment. So one of our followers, Game Changing History on Twitter, wanted to know uh, more about why he was such a big deal. So they said, the role of Heracles, or Hercules as some might refer to him, seems to be really huge. He's depicted on many coins, etc. I want to know why he became such a big thing. I can give you my reason, and that is that I think the reason that we see him particularly on vase paintings is because um, he represents a type of masculinity that the kind of men who could afford to uh, buy and own these pieces found impressive. So there are very many models of what it means to be a man in Greek myth, and particularly the Iliad, I have argued in print, I think, um, quite aside from uh, talks, that the Iliad offers a set of models of what kind of man you could be. Um, it offers a whole range of templates of uh, masculinity, and it's an incredibly interesting poem when looked at in that light. But Hercules is a sort of simpler version of this story, because what Hercules really likes to do is drink a lot and fight a bit and get involved with lots of women. And that is, it's like a really uncritical, unthinking kind of masculinity. Obviously, given that his first marriage ends in him murdering his wife and children, it, it would be fully legitimate to describe at least part of his story as toxic masculinity. But I would argue that for the most part, since that bit of the story is very rarely focused on, I think mostly people weren't interested in him because of the killing his wife and children element. They were interested in him because he goes off and has adventures and, you know, kills monsters and beds women. And this is great as far as they're concerned. And so I think probably men who use these, you know, beautiful drinking cups or wine bowls, which, you know, are decorated with scenes from Hercules' labours, um, they were almost certainly doing this in an environment where it was them and other men. So the highbrow version of this is Plato's Symposium. Most we can assume, I think, drinking nights were probably a bit less cerebral than that, but, you know, generally were quite raucous. Um, and you think, well, if you've got to choose what kind of, you can really see, you know, what kind of myth you might pick. It's like you and the lads getting together, you know, who he's like the er lad. I can completely see it. You know, there he is, you know, wrangling a, a lion with his hands around its neck. Um, obviously, as a joyless feminist vegetarian, I'm not in favour of such behaviour. But you can see how it looked, you know, kind of fun, like a fun adventure. So, yeah, I think that's why. I think he just represents a sort of quite simple version of masculinity that just looks a bit enjoyable and, uh, and uncritical. So I wanted to ask a question about religion. Greek mythology and religion are very closely interlinked. Obviously, we've got all of the gods and goddesses featuring in the stories. Um, but are they the same thing? How should we distinguish the two? No, they're not quite the same thing because there are definitely deities where we don't have myth around them um, or almost no myth around them. Uh, and sometimes we have we see them sort of pinned to another deity that we do have a bit of myth uh, surrounding. And then you can be like, oh, okay. Um, because, you know, this particular, like a local cult deity just does, you know, we don't have any evidence to tell us how they were worshipped, you know. So there are definitely gods that were worshipped about whom we know absolutely nothing at all. And equally, there are, you know, huge chunks of myth where the gods are present but not integral or, you know, they're not quite as present as we might think um, or they're not worshipped in that particular guise. So um, it, 
No, there's a lot of overlap, but no, they aren't the same thing. We had a few questions from listeners about the gods specifically, actually. Um, So Ellen Bree on Instagram wanted to know, how did the Greek gods influence people's daily lives? Yeah, again, it's a really difficult question to answer because we can look at the we can look at our literary sources, but we can look at our archaeological sources. You know, you only have to go to Athens and look up to see how influential Athene is in Athens. It's a city of hills and there's a great big freaking temple of her right at the top and it's still there two and a half thousand years later, dominating the skyline. It's the, It must be one of the most identifiable cities in the world. And that's what we're looking at. So, you know, obviously gods form part of your civic life if you live in Athens particularly in the fifth century. And so, and, and part of your architectural life, your basic business of going about the city, you must have used it as a, you know, as a point of reference. It's, you know, look at the Acropolis from this angle and then go right and, and so on and so on. And that's certainly not the only temple. That's just, you know, the biggest and most impressive, but there's the Temple of Hephaestus and so on. So yes, it would definitely have had a huge influence. And as I say, when you saw, for example, uh, you know, a new play by Aeschylus, you would be seeing that at the Dionysia, a festival of Dionysus. And that would be, you know, spread out over a few days. Um, you'd go for a whole, it would be four plays a day that you saw, just like reviewing in Edinburgh. Eh? Um, so you'd get a trilogy of tragedies and then a satire play that came after them. And that would be accompanied by sacrifices. So the whole thing would smell like an abattoir um, and then a barbecue um, and everyone would be drinking. And so, you know, it always really bothers me when people have a sort of, a quite sort of sacred attitude to things like Greek tragedy. It's like, it has to be in this very, you know, reserved space and tickets are expensive. And it's like, well, you know, I've seen so many productions of tragedy and comedy over the years where it's been done in the street or it's been done in a car park or it's been done. And it's like, well, that feels right to me. You know, this should have, this should be open access because, you know, it didn't used to be uh, reserved as high art f- from the masses. It used to be mass entertainment. Um, and so it seems a shame to me to not try and keep at least an element of that um, present. So then the question, I suppose, is how much would people going about their lives every day have believed in the gods? There are moments of godlessness uh, or at least agnosticism in ancient writing. So Protagoras, most famously, who begins a book with the words, on the subject of the gods, I am unable to say whether they exist or not. There are many obstacles to such knowledge, including the obscurity of the subject and the brevity of human life. Um, And for this, we're told his books were burned. So were people shocked by his blasphemy, you know, or or were they not successfully burned? Obviously, I think it's Cicero can quote from him, you know, hundreds of years later. So uh, as always with book burning, it doesn't go as well for the book burners as they feel like it it has. Um, Books have a way of hiding and and getting out later. But did, I don't know, did Plato, did Aristotle believe that Aphrodite was affecting their love lives? Or, you know, that Zeus was responsible for setting fire to something by hitting it with a thunderbolt? I find it not wildly likely, but, you know, that's that's my anachronistic brain talking, perhaps. Certainly in, we know that Socrates, about whom Plato wrote so extensively, was eventually put to death, was prosecuted for and and put to death for um, blasphemy, for asabeia is the Greek word, not believing in the gods, inventing his own gods and corrupting the young. And, you know, the final words of his apology, as written by Plato, are, you know, where he defends himself to a court of 
of Athenian citizens, men who are uh, who get to decide whether he lives or dies. He says it's it's time for us all to go, you to live and me to die, and which of us has the best sort of prospect ahead of us? Well, that's that's up to God. So he obviously does believe in God, a God, some gods. I, I mean, it's really difficult. I find polytheistic religions really interesting. So um, yeah, for a godless person, I spend a lot of time thinking and writing about gods. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She, she is the first monstered woman, I think. Um, She's t- literally turned into a monster as the price of having been sexually assaulted. And I was so angry for her and hurt for her, I thought, I'm giving her back her story. We did actually have a question from a Facebook follower of ours, Richard Goldstein. Um, So he asked, sometimes Greek and Roman authors vacillate between God, singular, and God's plural. So obviously ancient Greek religion was polytheistic. They worshipped multiple deities. Um, So who are they referring to when they say God, singular? Well, I mean, sometimes it's Zeus. Sometimes it's just use and sometimes you don't really need to bother. And I, th- I wonder if sometimes it's shorthand. And also sometimes it's, do you say God meaning, you know, whichever God, this is, whichever God is deciding this bit of my life? Maybe. I think generally, if, uh, if you use the singular, um, you probably mean Zeus, but certainly not always. And certainly there are times when I think it seems, it seems obvious to the writers or creators of what you're reading but it doesn't seem obvious to us so you know we're trying to kind of capture meaning across such a long way in terms of time and space it's like well did you mean because you've already or do you just assume if it's like a plague comes and you mention god it must be apollo and everyone would know it's apollo because apollo is the god responsible for plagues or are we supposed to think something else yeah I don't know. Uh, It's really, really hard to read things the way they would have been read thousands of years ago. Um, So it's it's a tough call, but for sure it's a a polytheistic system. And we get occasional moments of of sort of doubt, I suppose. Scepticism is probably overstating it. In um, Sophocles' play Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, Jocasta, the queen of Thebes, questions the idea not of gods existing but of them having any contact with us any you know we're like ants to them um and so she doesn't say i don't know if god doesn't exist but she does say i don't think gods are interested in what we do and you know as it will turn out as the play unfolds turns out the gods were really interested in what they were doing but you can see how her skepticism has has arisen when i wrote my version of of the Jocasta story a few years ago, um, I really played with that um, godlessness and then anxiety and then belief and how you would how you could easily move in a in a sort of pre-rationalist society between those states because you might easily think you know the gods have turned their backs on us and stop making the effort, but that wouldn't necessarily mean you would think they didn't exist. You might just think, as Jocasta does at that point in the play, that you know we're simply beneath their concern. Going back specifically to Zeus, Brendan Mitchell on Facebook wants to know, why was he top dog? How did he become king of the gods? He overthrows his father, who is the king of the gods, and and that is how you become king. Um, Terrible, terrible violence is the answer. So we have all of these wonderful names 
given to the Greek gods. So we've got Aphrodite, Zeus, Artemis, etc. Agrobiodiverse on Twitter wants to know, do their names actually mean something? Aphrodite is the best one. Aphrodite is born from the foam. So Zeus overthrows his father um, by taking a scythe to his genitalia. Sorry, all men, I do see that I've just made your day so much worse than it was before. And then the um, detached genitalia are sort of cast aside and land in the water, in the ocean. And um, and Aphrodite is born from, given from the foam uh, on the island of Cyprus, as myth has it. So you can go to, I have been to um, Aphrodite's rock uh, it's not far from Paphos in Cyprus. And you can see the actual bit of the sea, which is supposed to have given us Aphrodite. And obviously the version of this story we probably are more familiar with is this idea of her being, you know, looking incredibly beautiful in Botticelli and standing in a shell. Um, but yeah, I'm afraid the actual answer is um, from the disembodied genitals of parent God. There's <laughs> just no way through it. There it is. Um, so yeah, some of them do mean things um, in, in this particular instance. And quite a lot of them have names that... Um, or what's the word I want, like an honorific um, that goes with it. So Poseidon is often called things like Earth Shaker because of the whole, you know, uh, being able to cause earthquakes thing. But yeah, Aphrodite is your high watermark here, I think. So Aphrodite is known as Venus in the Roman version of the stories. And we know that there's considerable overlap between Greek and Roman mythology. Um, quite a few people on our social media wanted to know about this relationship. So Luke Gauchi on Instagram, for example, um, asked, how did the Greek myths evolve into Roman mythology? Was there a process or did it just happen? The Greeks come first. The Greeks come first and they create this incredibly complicated myth cycle. And it's really hard, I think, to, to think of another culture that has ever created quite so much material that focuses on quite so many characters and quite so many stories. Um, so Greek myth is incredibly detailed and I think the reason that it has survived so successfully through time and it's so appealing to us now in a way that maybe we spend a bit less time thinking about, say, Norse myth, um, I think it's because it's focused very much on individual human beings. And that's partly because the sources that we have, things like tragedy, are focused very much at the human level. But actually, there's not too much. There is some, you know, in, in Greek myth, God fights monster. Um, but there's an awful lot of, you know, man discovers terrible truth of self <laughs> and pokes out own eyes with pins. Um, and so it happens at quite a human level. Quite a lot of it happens at quite a human level. And I think that's probably what kind of draws us into it and to keep coming back to it. And the Romans are the most incredible magpies. Don't get me wrong, the Greeks were incredible magpies. They steal ideas and stories, currency, you know, alphabets from all over the world. The Phoenicians are the like the dealers to the Greeks. The Greeks get so much stuff from the Phoenicians and, you know, Mesopotamia, like I say, stories from Gilgamesh and things. All these stories are all pouring into the Greek world and they create this incredible, complex, huge raft of myth. And then the Romans come along and they're even more magpie. And they're like, oh, we could have this, we could have that, we could have this. And they're also trying to sort of establish themselves, um, particularly at the turn of the first century BCE to CE, when um, it moves from a republic to an imperial system. Uh, and um, Octavian becomes Augustus, the Emperor Augustus. Uh, that's Brian Blessed, for those of you who are doing the I Claudius thing. And at that point, there's a real attempt to give Rome some sort of historical gravitas. And particularly, 
a propagandist slash phony um, connection with Greek myth. So at this point, Virgil comes along, the great kind of poet laureate, I suppose, to um, the Emperor Augustus. And he writes between the years 29 and 19 BCE, he writes the Aeneid, the great founding story of, of Rome, in which Rome is founded by Aeneas, a prince who survives the Trojan War. Um, and book two of the Aeneid will tell you the fall of Troy and the Trojan horse and all the bits that people think are in the Iliad, but aren't. Um, they're actually in a, a Roman version. And so this is an attempt to really specifically, by the time we get to book six of the Aeneid, to connect Augustus to the Trojans. Um, and the fact that there's a huge time gap between the Trojan War, which is like the 13th, 12th century BC, and even the legendary foundation of the city of Rome, which is 753, is that right, BC? It's like 500 years later. And the Romans are so relentlessly efficient. They go, oh, okay, how long is that? Well, how long is the lifespan? We had 12 kings <laughs> to fill in the gap. <laughs> Good work. Um, and so yeah, the Romans are really interested in all kinds of Greek literature. The Greeks were so innovative. You know, they created epic poetry, as we think of it, and tragedy and comedy and history and biography and all of these things. The Romans absolutely love all of this stuff. Greek culture, Greek language is seen, you know, they have a, a very a slightly contested relationship with them because obviously they are a ruling class. The Romans are a ruling class when it comes to the Greeks. But at the same time, they they're entranced by it. You know, this is the language of high culture. If you want to be seen as a cultivated man, and education is, is not only limited to men, but mostly limited to men, then you would know Greek. You'd be able to write it and read it. Um, and so when Virgil decides to retell the story of Roman history, connecting it way back to the epics of Homer, then he's doing it in a really conscious way for an audience that says, basically, tell us where we're from. You know, tell us how we connect to this incredible historic panoply because we want to be part of it. When Ovid comes along with the metamorphoses and so neatly and cleverly, you know, switches our attention in one story after another. And, yeah, there are some really obscure bits of the metamorphoses with characters that we don't hear about in any other source, really, of, of Greek myth. And there's Ovid. He's like, a, he's like the magpie within the magpie culture. Um, magpieing a culture which itself has magpied everyone else. It's like he has the absolute shiniest piece of foil in his nest. Um, because, absolutely, he, you know, and so Greek myth provides this incredible and very complex sort of counterpane of, of material, of stories. And the Romans, you know, begin to, to find their cultural place, I think, by doing something that the Greeks have already been doing, which is to take these stories and, and make them new. And, you know, from the very earliest versions that we have, that's what's happening. Homer doesn't invent the Trojan War. He just tells the story of the Trojan War that he has already heard or that other people have already, you know, created and mixing it with his version. And is that really that different from what happens when Rick Reardon does Percy Jackson, it's not really. I mean, you know, I, all due respect, I prefer the poetry of Homer, but that it's he's doing the exact same thing, which is taking the story and saying, how can I make this mine? How can I make this mine for people who want to hear the story I want to tell? So it's very obvious that the Romans borrowed a lot from Greek mythology. Um, but if we flip that on its head, what were some of the influences that the Greeks drew on? 
Shazia Ansari on Instagram wanted to know specifically, are their stories inspired by other cultures or religions in Greek mythology? Yeah, Gilgamesh is the most obvious, but there are plenty more um, lurking around. And actually, there are some really interesting examples, which I didn't know, um, in Francesca Stavrakopoulou, I should say, Professor Francesca Stavrakopoulou's um, book about God um, and anatomy, uh, in which she looks at the kind of physical nature of God um, and gods in um, writings from the ancient Near East Um, which I didn't know anything like enough about. And I fully recommend if you want to see stories which will definitely end up being retold in Greek myth, there they are. So yes, the ancient Near East is the obvious answer. The Phoenicians, um, Mesopotamia as they would have called it, um, and um, all these kinds of uh, cultures that the Greeks can get to. Remember, it's it's a seafaring culture. So if you can sail to it, they'll go there. Um, they'll trade with them and that means stories will be told. So my next question is going to be rather long so apologies in advance. Interestingly when we put a shout out on our social channels to get questions from our listeners for this podcast we didn't specifically mention that we were interviewing you however one of our followers on Twitter did in fact name drop you in their questions so obviously we have to include this one. So shout out to Jorn Eichhorn on Twitter, who wanted to ask, historians like Natalie Haynes state that the different storylines of Greek mythology are much more diverse than common understanding realises. So firstly, I'm just going to jump in here at this point, and I'm going to ask, is this a fair summary of your viewpoint on the matter? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We would like everything to be really easy, but it just isn't. You know, there there is no story I can think of if it's told by more than one person, which isn't told in in different ways. They're being created and recreated and innovated from the very earliest tellings that we have. So then, to get to the to the real meat of the question, your Nikehorn wants to know what mistakes do we commonly make when thinking about Greek myths, and what do the actual texts really say? Probably our biggest mistake is to think there's a right version, you know, and it makes me feel kind of sad because I I understand the delight of a right answer. Do you know what I mean? I am I am not immune to the charm of maths. Um, I like a right answer as well. But um, it seems to me a terrible shame that people are so determined often to be like, oh, well, that's wrong. It's not like that. Or is that, well, I don't, I don't really feel that way myself I think you know by all means play in the field sometimes something is crankingly you know anachronistic and you're like oh I wish you hadn't done that but you know if it's like a thousand years later if you see somebody you know wandering around in Helen era Sparta you know trading silk which wasn't traded outside of you know uh, China or India for you know like a thousand years and you're like oh my god that's like having an iPhone on the Bayer tapestry but once you know it's like well it does it matter to the thing it doesn't really um if you're telling a story I kind of think tell the story and and if it's wrong it's wrong but you know I'd rather people had sort of passion for the stories and wanted to make them their own um and so I spend really very little time worrying that the the Greek myth will get sort of damaged by being told wrong (laughs) it just won't I once saw a production of Oedipus Tyrannus um where they they in the first half they had the Oedipus story that we all know where he kills this mean old man who spoiler turns out to be his dad at a crossroads um and then in the second half they went back and and said what would happen if they'd met at the crossroads and talked 
you know, what would happen if he hadn't, what, what would happen if it hadn't been history's first road rage incident? Um, and they'd instead had a conversation. And it was incredible looking at the story the other way around. And it's like, well, if this, the, you know, one of the most famous stories in the world where, you know, a man overthrows his father and then marries his mother, a story which would, you know, inspire everyone right up to Freud and beyond, then if that can survive him not doing the first thing, it'll be fine. You know, don't don't worry, it'll be fine. So my feeling is it would be lovely if we could allow ourselves more readily to accept um, that there are so many different versions of each story and the kind of delight is in is in looking for them and finding these more abstruse ones or the more arcane version hiding behind a hedge somewhere. And you're like, really? Are you sure? You know, I've tracked down a version of a story of Helen where she eats three kid goats a day. And you're like, well, that is not what we think of the world's most beautiful woman doing, but okay, I want to hear more about the woman who can chomp her way through three kid goats a day. That is, it's a good story. And you're like, well, yeah, tell me more about that. And I love the idea that that the Greeks themselves are asking these questions. And I think they're much more ready to allow for the complexity than, than we are. You know, there's a fantastic moment at the start of the Euripides play, Helen, where she talks about her her parenthood. And she's, she says, I paraphrase very slightly, she says, yeah, I'm Helen. I was, you know, born from an egg um, because Zeus took on the form of a swan to seduce Leda, my mother, um, if you can believe that. And it's like, well, it doesn't even sound like you believe it. <laughs> it sounds like you think it's absolute nonsense. And then she eventually says, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm Helen. And you're like, well, yeah. You're right, it doesn't matter. Is her mother leader or is she nemesis? Does nemesis take on the form of a goose to be impregnated by Zeus in the form of a swan? doesn't matter. She's Helen. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. What else do you need to know? And the answer is everything will, will be told to you in the play. So you know all you, do, all you need. Um, so yeah, I think there's something really joyous about allowing these that these stories are, are like multiple doors opening in every direction at any given point, that there isn't a, a sort of prescribed route that you have to take through. And I think often, you know, for, for shorthand or because we just got used to it, that's that's the version of the story that we've tended to go with. So Helen is a beautiful adulteress, you know, Achilles, in some versions of his story, um, is he has the, the heel because he's dipped into the river Lethe, I think, and his mother holds him by the ankle. But in some versions, she burns him in a fire. She tries to burn the sort of mortal elements out of him in a fire. And we, it's like, is it, it's better, isn't it, if we know both of those versions than if we only know the the sort of easier one, maybe? So, yeah, I'm a real fan of of looking at things in a in a different way. So I'm aware that time is getting away with us. And I wanted to ask you specifically about women in Greek myth. We had lots of questions in this area and you are a bit of an expert in this field. You've written two novels from the perspective of women. These are A Thousand Ships and Children of Jocasta. And you also recently published a nonfiction book, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myth, um, in October last year. Um, so I guess we'll start with a bit of a general question. How how are women portrayed generally in Greek myths? Much more interestingly than they tend to be now is the answer. There are, ex- I mean, everything you want as a writer is um, is there in the way that the Greeks themselves portray women in their myths. So we get incredibly complicated characters who have total agency and make complicated choices, some of which are heroic, some of which are villainous, some of which are both. Um, 
You only have to look at a character like Hecabe, whose story I told in A Thousand Ships, my novel of, of, the, of the women of the Trojan War. Um, and she commits one of the most horrific revenges in all of Greek tragedy. And that is saying something, I might add. Um, and yet, you know, she does it as an old woman who's been, she's watched her city destroyed. She's the, she was the queen of Troy. Her husband has been killed, Priam, king of Troy, while clinging in a temple for sanctuary, for sanctuary and, and begging for mercy, basically. And he's just slaughtered this old man. Her sons have all been killed in the war, um, almost all been killed in the war. Her daughters enslaved, all of them. She has dozens and dozens of children, as the myth goes. And having lost everything, being the ultimate victim, really, the sort of old woman who has, has lost absolutely everything, she is herself enslaved, she commits the most extraordinary act of violence against a man who has injured her. And she does so by weaponizing his children. She kills his children, and then she and her um, fellow slave women, the, the women who had been her, her associates in Troy, they blind the man so that the last thing he will ever have seen is his children dying for his treachery. I mean, that is brutal. But she is a, she's a victim, and then she's a villain. And it's like, well, you will, you'll wait a really long time in you know, Western literature for anything that good, any part that good for a woman to be written. It's a much better role, sorry, than Lady Macbeth. It just is. Do you want to be the wife of the hero? Or do you want to be the hero slash villain? Or let's go with protagonist, I guess, since she kills children. That's quite refreshing, isn't it? Having a much older woman flipping the switch on the traditional script. It is. And we really want that. I think we really want that. I think there's a reason why Greek tragedies are performed so often now. And that's because there are women who have the power to, to get a play put on because they want to be in it. And if you got to choose whether you were going to play as I say, Lady Macbeth or Medea, you would pick Medea, I think. Um, you know, you, you get more stage time. So why wouldn't you? So, yeah, there are really, really fantastic, complicated characters of, of women in Greek myth. And it's a shame that we lost those. You know, they often get simplified or sanitized um, or forgotten. You know, the plays that focus on women, like uh, Euripides' Alcestis, it's almost never performed um, but she is to the Greeks, or at least to Plato, she is a much greater romantic hero than Orpheus. You can't move for versions of Orpheus's story. Um, and, you know, there we are. So um, in, in Plato's Symposium, a, one of the characters specifically says, uh, you know, that he doesn't really rate Orpheus because he wasn't prepared to die for love, unlike Alcestis, who was. And yet, how, you know, when did you last see a production of Alcestis? I mean, this is a really general question that probably is applicable to the entirety of history. Um, but why do you think that women have been overlooked in Greek mythology or why have their stories been lost or not told? Yeah, I'm afraid it's a combination of Christianity and patriarchy. Um, sorry to, you know, bang that tune, but there it is. So, you know, Pandora is a really interesting character for the ancient Greeks. The thing that's interesting about her is that she's the first woman. Um, there aren't women before her, and she, so she's our ancestress. Um, we're descended from her. Men are descended from Erichthonius, who's also made of clay. Um, and, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes she has a jar, sometimes she doesn't. 
Sometimes the jar's got nice things in it. Sometimes it's got bad things in it. Sometimes Pandora opens the jar. Sometimes her husband, Epimetheus, opens the jar. That's in the version by Aesop of Fables fame. Um, the nice things is in Theognis and his elegies. Um, and, and yet the only version that anyone knows is that Pandora has a box and she deliberately opens it malevolently because it's been mapped onto the Eve narrative, the idea of the Garden of Eden. Well, you know, Eve at least does do the thing she's sort of accused of in the book of Genesis, albeit that, you know, she's a bit set up in my view. Um, but Pandora really doesn't always do this, but we just, we've just obliterated all the other versions. You know, as I told you before, she doesn't even get a box until... <laughs> 500 years ago and yet somehow you know that's the only version of the story that that people know i have quite a sensitive question from one of our listeners on instagram um so history but make it hot wants to know why is rape featured so prominently in many of the greek myths she wonders specifically if this has affected attitudes to women i suspect it's the other way around truthfully um i think it's more likely that rape and sexual assault were so common in the ancient world, as indeed they are, let us be honest, in the modern world, um, that the idea of not including these elements to a story would simply not have occurred to anybody. Why would it when it was just presented as a, as a fact of life? Um, you know, if sexual violence is, is a constant presence. War is a constant presence, which means sexual violence is always going to be a a consequence of that, quite aside from anything else. You have an enslaved culture. Sexual violence is intrinsic to that, and so on and so on and so on. I honestly don't think it would have occurred to anybody to think it was weird. It would be like saying, why is death such a big part of, of Greek myth? Because it happens all the time, I'm afraid. So we're pretty much at the end of the podcast now, and I did have just a few final quickfire questions for you. So firstly... What, in your view, is the most well-known Greek myth? The most well-known Trojan War, I think, probably. Um, I think the Trojan horse manages to sort of push through, even when there aren't very many phrases that come straight out of Greek myth to us now. Uh, Pandora's box, obviously, the, the most irritating. Um, but I would say, you know, really, Achilles heel, Trojan horse, they both come from the Trojan War, so Trojan War. And then my final question for you is, which character or myth in Greek mythology do you find the most interesting and why? Whichever one I'm currently writing, because I'm always in love with the story I'm currently writing. So for me at the moment, it's Medusa, because she's my next novel. What is it about Medusa that made you want to write a novel about her? I wrote a chapter about her in Pandora's Jar, and I wanted to really look at why I felt something which had, had bothered me for ages. And I was trying to explain it to my mum when I was writing the book. And I couldn't, I was so angry about it. Couldn't really express it properly. And I was like, here's my thing. We're all so sorry for Midas because, you know, he wishes for his special power and it's to turn things to gold. And then it's like, oh, but his poor daughter, who I might add doesn't appear until really late in his story. Um, and so this sort of, basically in, in true 1990s Hollywood fashion, they just invent a pretty girl so she can die. Oh, great. I was hoping that would happen. Can she do anything for her? Oh, no. Okay. Um, and, and it's like, so we feel, when we, when we look at the story of Midas, we feel the story from the inside out. It's like, what would it be like to be Midas? And everything you touch is destroyed. And yet when we look at the story of Medusa, who has the exact same problem, everything she looks at turns to stone, we don't see it from the inside. What must it be like not to be able to look at anyone you love ever without killing them? We see it from the outside. How do I avoid being killed by that monster that can turn me to stone? 
And I was so angry when I was writing her chapter. It's about 10,000 words long, I guess. And I was still really mad by the time I got to the end of it. And I thought, I, if, you, if you're this cross, you owe her a whole book. Um, and it's a, it is an angry book. It's a funny book, I hope, and a sad one often. And it's only, I've just got to edit it, um, the final chunk today and over the weekend. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of looking, it's right here next to me and I'm like, oh. But yeah, it's a, she, she is the first monstered woman, I think. Um, she's t- literally turned into a monster as the price of having been sexually assaulted. And I was so angry for her and hurt for her, I thought, I'm giving her back her story. That was the writer, classicist and broadcaster Natalie Haynes. Natalie is known for her retelling of Greek myths from the perspective of women. Those include A Thousand Ships and The Children of Jocasta, which are published by Mantle. Her most recent non-fiction book, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths, was published in October 2020. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.